Hello, and welcome to Bard Talk. I'm your host, Josh, and for the 37th time, that's good enough. So what am I going to talk about today, might you ask? Well, let me get some laundry out of the way, some some hype stuff. Um, I am exactly 12 days out from starting my new job. Um, I'm super excited. I'm so ready to go back to 911 Ambulance. Um, I, I, I've learned some stuff, though. I think this, uh, this little month-long hiatus of tones dropping and lights and sirens has been good for my soul because it's, it's taught me some humility. You know, um, transport EMTs, uh, transport services, transport ambulance services that shuttle people from nursing homes to various appointments. And believe it or not, uh, we do do some 911 calls, but it's usually an uh-oh, nobody thought this one through type of call. Um, they're not looked at favorably. Uh, most of these companies are for-profit companies, so that automatically makes them bad guys in most people's eyes. And it's not thought of widely, I don't think, about their role in servicing the community. Now, uh, it's true, mostly the elderly or the very sick or people in rehab. And when I say rehab, I mean like physical rehab. Um, and I don't know, there's just a stigma that that's like a lower class of EMT or EMS provider. And I'll tell you right now, um, mark this down, it is a much harder job than 911. Uh, it's for starters, like you don't see base except for when you start. Um, and when you get back, you don't sit at base. Uh, you can't really do anything else. When I climb into the driving chair of the, the ambulance, I don't leave the driving chair of the ambulance, um, except to transfer patients. And then when I get home, so it's it's tough. It's tough on the body. It's tough on the eyes. Uh, I've I've been coming home pretty frequently with headaches. Um, food has been very elusive, uh, especially right now due to the COVID uh, third outbreak and just the nature of the job is very tough. So I think it was good. I think um, I think everybody in EMS and fire should spend some time on a transport truck and really appreciate the the sacrifices these people make um it's hard it's hard it's ems without the adrenaline it's ems without the downtime it's it's ems without uh, a real feeling like you're making a change um i've said a couple times now that it, it often feels like i'm kind of just kicking the can down the road for these people like the terminality of what they are suffering from is evident and I'm, I'm kind of just taking them out um, to see them on their way off. And I feel like that it's short-sighted to say I'm not making a difference. Uh, certainly by treating these people with dignity, respect, and kindness, I know that at least for that part of the day when they're out of their hospital bed and they're with me, I can certainly make their day a little better. And I take that responsibility serious. I wish more people in the field did. Uh, unfortunately, the job does get to you, and um, it's not always the case. Uh, there's a lot of horror stories with transport companies, but I'm ready uh, to close that chapter. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to move back to my my field, my field of of blood, guts, and glory. I guess you could say, but 
it was a good stop. Um, I've learned so much this year, uh, and I think I think most people have. I think being pushed out of our comfort zones uh, via lockdowns, via changing habits, uh, just the way we live our lives is so drastically different in 2020 than it was in 2019. And um, we're learning stuff. And, and this year keeps presenting things flipped on their head. Um, the election, now firmly over, thank God, um, isn't over, unfortunately. It isn't over... Uh, in in the eyes of certain people who somehow feel that our system is going to change that I don't know I don't know I don't know what to expect in 2021 uh we may very well see our very first president arrested after his term in office I don't know and I'm not going on any of these wild pang theories that they're going to get him on on something that he's unindictable for while in office I isn't peaceful um it'll mark the first in american history and it's going to change the way politics go down and i don't know what the future holds but i think we're all going to learn some lessons moving forward with that said um i found out uh today that i'm going to be um one of the first people to receive the new vaccine uh, due to the nature of my work um, and this is actually through the county I live in um, with my volunteer company. Um, I'm, I'm going to be getting the vaccine soon. And uh, I'm excited. I know I've talked about it before. I've talked about the um, excitement that, that surrounds this new genetic form of vaccine, um, the viral vector vaccine. And uh, they keep... They just keep boasting how how effective it is. Um, all the companies that are using this um, RNA inside of a, a human a human antigen, uh, they're all boasting ninety five percent effectiveness now, which is exciting. And they're also saying that the side effects are limited. Which traditionally, when you would put an RNA programmer into a medium such as a human antigen, an, alre an already known virus to the human body, uh, you'd get a couple days where you'd have flu-like symptoms. I mean, that's that's pretty common, but this this new method seems to not have that in most people. So I'm really looking forward. I can't wait to get the vaccine. Um, it's a little disheartening that that we're being more so asked if we want to and I don't know how to explain the wording without without getting in trouble but we're being asked if we want to deny the vaccine if we don't want to get it rather than asked being asked if we want it and I do believe there is a power in words I believe that uh, intention can be felt via the question asked and it I don't like the way it was asked. I don't. I don't like um, being asked if I don't want to get it. I should be enthusiastically encouraged to get it. Um, it is what it is, though. I mean, we we live in a climate where people are they, they don't trust. 
They don't trust science. They certainly don't trust corporations. They don't trust the government. They don't trust uh, the people who are looking out for them. And, and this has all been fostered by the very real consequences of that trust being misused. Uh, companies that created end-of-life opiate p- pain pills that that were, were never meant to be prescribed to people who hurt themselves got hooked on, on, on very uh, addictive substances, and as a result, the heroin crisis in this country is ridiculous. And that's all the result of a company misleading people, um, using science in a negative way, and, and people are rightfully distrustful. Sorry, I had to sip my tea. A little ASMR for y'all. Um, but that's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Um, of course, I'll report exactly what happens. But I wonder, um, I'm speculating in my head, of course, that once I receive the vaccine, I make the assumption that I'll get some kind of card or some kind of identification that says I've been vaccinated. And without sounding like a prick, because I don't want to sound like a prick, but I hope that after an incubation period, be it a week, 14 days, I don't really care, a month, fine with me. Um, Perhaps I can go back to life as normal. Perhaps then, just like with the polio vaccine, I'll be able to travel freely. I'll be able to go to the grocery store and not wear a mask. And I know that sounds horrible. We're all making sacrifices, but I wear the mask because I care about my fellow man. And I do not want to be the cause of spreading such a terrible disease or virus. And, and so it's, it's, it's an act that I do, um, and I feel convicted to do so. That doesn't mean that the mask isn't uncomfortable. That doesn't mean that there aren't times that I'm so tired of smelling my own breath and, and covering this gorgeous, I mean, beautiful Tom Selleck-esque mustache I have cultivated over these last few months. I'm ready to see people's smiles again. I'm ready for that. Oh, God, am I so ready for that. So, I mean, maybe it's a little childish of me, but I would really hope that I would get something. Hell, a tattoo. I get a tattoo that says I got the COVID-19 vaccine. Maybe I'll do that. Hey, that's not a bad idea. Maybe, like, like, you know, as, as, as a way to commemorate 2020, I will get like a syringe tattoo and like on the syringe, it'll be like COVID-19 vac. I don't know. I'm going to have to storyboard this and figure it out. But if you can't tell, I'm super excited. And I really, truly hope that despite the well-earned mistrust of the public that you are too. And I hope that everybody goes out and, and researches this thing and finds out all kinds of information. I mean, YouTube is a wealth of knowledge, multiple publications, and whichever way you slant, I'm sure you can find something about the vaccine that will help guide your decision. And and should you choose to get it, which I truly hope that you do, um, I I hope that we can get back to normal. I I want, man, do I want to see businesses flourish and and. I want to see people get back on their feet, and I know it's late. I mean, we're going into the holiday seasons, and it, I guess that's going to be my next kind of topic is like, I hear so many people really bemoaning the holiday season this year. People who have been affected super negatively, 
um, by COVID-19 cuts, um, by the slowdown of the markets, uh, jobs just cutting people left and right. Um, I'm, I'm no less a victim of all this, and certainly I'm not going into the season with huge cash stores. Uh, I am strapped. Uh, last month was a struggle to see all of the bills paid and, and not be desolate. Um, and this, I knew going in that this month was going to be no different. Um, I'm not going to see my first paycheck from the new job until two weeks into December. And I'm going to have to pay all my bills before I can even consider going Christmas shopping. So, but is that so bad? Um, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, my personal favorite holiday, and, and and only because I am a total fat kid at heart and in body, and it's one of those holidays, it's got to be the best holiday. You show up to somebody's house, and the only expectation is for you to eat their food, drink their wine, and, you know, make them laugh. Unfortunately, this year, that's not a good idea, and I would truly hope that everybody exercises a level of caution and doesn't do a giant uh, holiday gathering. Um, I know it sucks. It sucks. I hate it. I hate it as much as I hate wearing a mask. I hate it as much as I hate seeing my friends suffer because their businesses that they started this year are floundering, or the jobs that they work in are are struggling to stay alive and cutting people, and you're just waiting for that that name that you own to be called. I I hate it all, but I, I truly feel that... Um, we're going to see a major spike. We're already seeing a major spike. We're already overwhelming hospitals. And if people ignore, ignore the guidelines, um, ignore, let's not, let's take it a step back there. If people refuse to accept that this virus is one of the most infectious viruses the world has ever seen. And then if we get together, even in small groups on Thanksgiving, it is going to spread it. If you have 10 or 12 people over to your house and everybody's eating and drinking, um, you're going, the, the odds of you spreading that virus are huge, huge. People who are asymptomatic are going to spread it to people who may not be. And then you're going to be staring down the barrel as, uh, you know, as Christmas approaches, possibly with fewer relatives. And I, I truly expect that we're going to see a lockdown, if not the first week of December, the next um, I'm seeing it in my job. I'm seeing it go up and up and up. Um, the amount of barriers and, and gear I have to wear is increasingly growing. Um, in many places that I go to pick people up, we're, we're wearing full plastic suits. We're wearing masks, goggles, two pairs of gloves. We're crossing through plastic barriers. I mean, this is serious. And, and I know that we're all tired of it. I, Lord knows we're all tired of it. But truly, if we try to carry on Thanksgiving as business as normal, we're going to doom ourselves. And, and by doom, I just say, you know, we're going to have another spike. We're going to lose more people. Uh, the holidays are going to be even bleaker than they already are. And it's, it's, going, to, it's going to be bad. It's going to hurt more. Whereas if we can just show some restraint do the best we can to connect, I think we're going to survive. I think we're going to find that this year has taught us so much about self-reliance, about 
being close with those people right in your household and doing the best we can while there's a, a, a very deadly, super spreadable virus out there. Um, and, and, you know, what's what really is a shame is I think that the government in its back and forth approach and, and the experts at their back and forth approach have kind of taught us how not to do things. You know, uh, they at first, you know, restaurants were takeout only, and then they opened it up to a quarter percent capacity. Then they opened it up to 50 percent capacity. And in doing so, um, we we started going into the buildings. Of course, it's getting colder here in the northeast. So now there's no outside seating. Everybody's going in. And the rules are generally you wear your mask when you go to the bathroom or when you're walking in. But then as soon as you sit down at the table, you take it off. As if somehow eating is a green light to not worry about spreading it. You can't spread it while you're eating or drinking. And we that's what's fundamentally going to get us during these holidays is that people will wear their mask inside, but then you're going to get a glass of wine or a soda or a tea. You're going to sit down to eat and you can't eat with a mask on. So everybody's going to take their masks off. Nobody's going to be practicing any type of, of gloves or, or, or contact type isolation. So uh, it's, the government has failed us in many ways, no less so in this area. Um, and it truly is a shame. But it's, it's some lessons you have to learn the hard way. Some lessons like can only be learned through trial and error. And I think that people who have their hearts in the right areas are doing the best they can. And we're just going to have to get through this. And as far as Christmas goes, I don't think the vaccine is going to be widely available yet. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to get it. I just am excited that I'm going to be in the first wave. That first wave could be January. It could be December. Um, I hope it's December. Uh, I would have signed up for the trial. I mean, hell, get the vaccine and get paid. But... Uh, this is, this is going to happen. I'm excited. Um, and that's what's going on in my little corner of the world. That was not what I wanted to take up this whole podcast with though. Uh, I actually want to spill the tea. I want to, I, I know that a majority of my listeners are, are female, uh, women. And actually I may take a step back there. Why does the, the term female offend people? I'm genuinely cur- curious because like, I've said female before and I get a weird look and I'm just like, what? And they're like, well, that's like very clinical. And I, I think like people who use that term are like MAGA hat wearing uh, red state people. And I don't like it. And I, I truly get lost on this one. I, I can't in my head make the bridge for why using female is wrong. I guess it is clinical. Women is better. Uh, I try to not use like girls because I think that's kind of condescending. Like, I think if you're above the age of 18 or hell, 16, women is is better. Like you're at least acknowledging like they are a mature person, a whole bodied person. And I know that's open for argument, but it's one of those things. Remember when I used to apologize over and over and over again for saying Indian um, and then I, I drew that hard line and I was just like, no, I think this is right. And I'm going to stand by it. But I don't know. Females, uh, 
the word female, I guess, is going to be another word where I, I don't know. I'm going to apologize for saying it, but if somebody could explain to me on Twitter or Instagram or or whatever, um, drop me a line. I'm curious what you think. A little poll here: female, women, woman. Um, what's the preferred? Uh, what's the preferred verbiage there? Let me know. Anyways. I want to talk about guys. Yeah, men. I want to talk about sports. I want to talk about what the the male experience is like in regards to these things. A little bit of my background and 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 why I feel the way I feel. So, I'll start off by just saying that, you know, um my dad, he worked third shift the majority of my life. So that meant I saw him sometimes on the weekends. Uh, but he oftentimes he worked the weekends too. Um, but not much, not much. Um, and he was also one of those, like I worked a rotating shift where I worked nights and my go-to was to get done work, go to the gym, get a shower, be in bed by like eight 9 o'clock at the latest. And then like up at two or three, at the very latest, and then I had the whole day to do what I needed to do, um, I was around, um, when my friends came home from work, like, I could run fire calls if I needed to, my dad always stayed up till, like, 10 or 11, went to bed until an hour before he had to go to work, got up, got himself ready, and off he went, and so I never really saw him, like, I didn't see him much during the day, he was, he was up when I uh, wasn't around, so, it was weird, whatever. Um, my dad liked football, and and I don't mean European soccer. Uh, I mean football. He liked the good old American pastime. Uh, I think he watched baseball. We certainly went to a few baseball games, but football was his thing. Uh, he was a Philadelphia Eagles fan through and through. And for a little time, when I went through that period where I wanted to emulate my dad, um, I liked football too. I guess, um, I liked the Miami Dolphins, uh, purely aesthetically on color. Um, and because, you know, when I was a little kid, the greats were Dan Marino and Randall Cunningham and Brett Favre and, you know, storied names of the past. I mean, I, it's really weird. This innate knowledge I have of like early nineties football quarterbacks and ladies, please do not turn out tune out. I promise you this is worth your time. But uh, I bring this up because when when I started to develop my own identity, you know, around around 11, 12, 13, somewhere there and about, you know, as a boy, you feel this this transition into manhood where your hormones just dump testosterone on you. And you feel that the things that you were you were passionate about, you start to kind of reflect on them. You start to think about them objectively. You start to really parse out what, what you like and don't like. And one of the things that always enamored me as a little kid and well deep into my teens were, were cars. Motorcycles specifically, but cars too. I mean, I had... I had subscriptions to Hot Rod Magazine until my mom found one that was the swimsuit edition, I think they used to do in June. 
Yeah, I think in June, for like no reason at all, Hot Rod would just be like, here's a swimsuit edition. And as a teenage male, love that. Loved that-ish. But being a super Christian, super religious person, my mom, uh, not so much. So oftentimes she would intercept that one, cut it up, and then give me a lecture about how I objectify women and that magazine's evil one. Honestly, it was like a good week of just getting berated by my mom about my taste in in media. Um, And it's a shame because as much as comic books turned the corner for me on reading and made me an enthusiastic reader, Hot Rod Magazine really turned the corner for me and made me enthusiastic about learning how things worked. You know, my dad never learned how to work on cars. Uh, he couldn't change the oil. I don't even know if he could change a tire, to be honest with you. Like he, I, I, I don't think it was truly a lack of mechanical aptitude. I think it was a combination of he didn't find any value in knowing that, or there was some kind of cultural like indignation that, you know, he would have to do that kind of stuff. So, but my dad liked cars too. Um, he just couldn't work on them. So he never passed on to me any type of desire or taught me how to work on cars. He just owned them. Um, and my dad had the same taste I did. Uh, when I was a little kid, he had a 73 Roadrunner. And one of my best memories of him is riding around. And this thing had like that huge uh, Eastern rake. So like the front end squat really low and the back had huge tires. Um, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong, I'm pretty sure it had a big set of Chrome Krager rims and these just massive rear tires. And it was loud too. You know, it was a 340, 340, uh, carbureted, just beautiful car. And we would drive around and he would listen to Motown, my dad's big Motown fan. So he'd listen to Motown, we'd drive around this car, and people would pull up next to him and rev up their engines, and it just, it felt like my dad was a celebrity when he was in that car. And then, of course, he sold it, and we got a station wagon, and, you know, station wagons were cool. I didn't really appreciate them at the time, because, you know, I was of that era, not really before minivans. Uh, minivans came out in, in the, the mid eighties as did I. And, but they were like new and minivans were front wheel drive four and six cylinder mom mobiles. Even back then they just had a stigma that was like, ew. Um, but station wagons, station wagons were big V8 sedans with huge, just like never ending, um, back ends that, that you would sit facing the traffic opposing you so that when a car rear ended you, it would smash your ankles and make you a paraplegic for life. And they also had tow hitches. And, and so there was this element that you could tow stuff with them. And, and ah, that were great. Station wagons were awesome. I loathe minivans. Station wagons are boss. Uh, and I've seen some beautiful station wagons um, in my time. But we had a station wagon for a long, long, long time before my dad got a minivan. And... And the first minivan he got was a Dodge. Um, it was a Dodge Caravan. 
And it was just this really comfortable, you know, captain's chairs, V6, and no frills, just a minivan. My dad even liked it because it was Mopar. My dad liked Mopar. And I like Mopar to this day. Um, you know, when I'm feeling, uh, when I miss my dad, I like riding around in my charger and playing Motown and thinking about him. And thinking about the love of cars he passed on to me. I, he tried to pass on football. And I'll explain that. I'll go back. Rewind. Let's catch that on the backside. But like, you know, as a little boy trying to emulate my dad, uh, I tried to get excited about football. I tried to enjoy it. Um, and and football is, is a sport with a 100% injury rate. So your favorite players at some point as you're watching are going to hurt themselves and they're going to be out for a couple games and your team is going to be decimated. Um, it's super expensive. Tickets to go watch a football game are just beyond what the average person can afford. And, and certainly for a family, you, you, you're, not, you're not taking a family to a football game easily. And that's on top of the price that the team draws out of the city. So I guess the turning point for me with football from enjoying it. So I had a way to connect with my brother and father and, and loathing it as a sport altogether really started, um, in, in the early, I think it was the two thousands, um, when the Eagles used this tried and true tactic that every football team uses, which is please build us another stadium, um, or we're going to move to Los Angeles. And and it's it's really incredulous to think that the owners of these teams that make millions, hundreds of millions of dollars every year off of the TV rights, the radio rights, the franchising, the logo. I mean, the, Jeffrey Lurie, who owns the Philadelphia Eagles, makes money Every time that stupid bird head pops up, every time something's Kelly green, the guy gets a cut of it. And it is such, he's not alone. Every owner of every NFL team is the same way. And, and, and they put a lot of money in. I understand that they got to pay the players and they got to pay the people to work the concessions and the stands and they keep things clean. And I understand the money in money out thing, but the incredulousness to go to a city, one of the poorest cities in the Northeast and say, Hey, this thing that, that is so beloved by everybody that, that, that everybody's so loyal. I mean, we, we never have produced a winning team ever, never won a Super Bowl, uh, rarely make it into the playoffs. Generally we are the punching bag for the NFL. I'm sorry, but it's true. Um, if you don't use tax money to build us a multi-million dollar complex so that we can play games, we're going to move to Los Angeles where they know they will. Now, had I been on city council, it would have been an easy decision. I would have said, goodbye, don't let the door hit you on the, your ass on the way out. How dare you? How dare you? I understand. I understand the amount of money that gets put into downtown from people all over the state, all over the country coming to an Eagles game in Philadelphia and buying hotels and bus fare and, and trains and taxis and shopping and eating and, and, and visiting Philadelphia. I'm not stupid. I understand all of that. I understand the revenue gains and how it benefits the community. And that's why 
you know, I'm not utterly opposed to the NFL, but even the charity work is, is worth mentioning. But I think that that is such a ridiculous tactic to not show the city that has given you so much love and so much support any options but build this or we'll leave. So they tore down a stadium that was relatively old, that was a transformable stadium. So the Eagles would play in it and the Philadelphia Phillies would play in it. And they tore that down and they tore down the spectrum and they built this new sports arena complex so that everybody could play on their own field and the parking lots were much bigger and overall it was a much better experience and blah 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 but I really stuck in my craw that the taxpayers not only from Philadelphia but from all over the state had to fit the bill for that had to pay for this complex for sports that then robbed them Rob them with $8 beers and $5 hot dogs and blah, 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 blah. I just, I can't, I cannot understand. For me, ball-based sports just seem like a, a, a crime. Because baseball teams do the same thing. I don't know that the Philadelphia Phillies ever went and said, hey, if you don't build a stadium, we're piecing out to L.A. Because um, L.A. already has like a bazillion baseball teams, but... It, the point of the matter is that football in particular was at one point one of the highest grossing sports in America and it just, it's just awful. It's awful to the people that enjoy it. It's not loyal. It's not kind. It's not, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And then the players themselves, you know, like my dad, God bless him. I'll give it to him. He always said like, you know, don't don't make your heroes mortal people. Don't look up to football players. Don't look up to sports athletes at all because they're all foible. They're all humans, and they're going to let you down at some point. And I don't know where the hell that came from, but I mean, it was true. It was true. You know, like I remember doing little essays when I was a kid, and like my hero was Dan Marino and and his ability to to throw a, a bomb, which is basically arcing the ball like in this ridiculously long fashion, and then it would land pinpoint into the receiver's hands. And I just thought that was like amazing. Um, you know, we played two hand touch football every day, every day out on the street we were playing football because it was just. It was a very accessible sport, and it was fun, and it got us moving and, and, and working out problems and forming friendships and alliances and enemies. And, you know, it, it stimulated that honeybee part that I always talk about, that, that 90% chimp logically thinks things through and that 10% that honeybee just wants to be a part of stuff. So um, when, I was, when I was a little kid, for sure, like, there was a standard to be an NFL player. Like there was certainly a standard that you had to present yourself professional. You wore suits when, when you weren't in your uniform doing press conferences, you, you carried about yourself as, as an educated athlete, because the, the myth was that all the NFL athletes all went to college. You couldn't get into the NFL if you didn't go to college. So, you know, you're supposed to be higher educated and, and, and that, you know, it, it just, um, Wow, it really took a turn in the mid 2000s. And then all of a sudden, like the athletes didn't care what their fans think. They didn't care. They they wanted to be who they were going to be. And the string of athletes 
murdering people, um, beating up their wives and girlfriends and smashing cars and getting caught with coke and, and all kinds of drugs and, and the party lifestyle took over. And, and you had athletes who came out and would flatly tell you like, I, I'm nobody's role model. I never wanted to be a role model. I play football for a living. That's what I do. If that's not enough for you, then, you know, oh, well, um, it was kind of heartbreaking to see a little bit, I guess, to, to see people who were, were given this, this gift, you know, this privilege to earn a living doing something fun that they, they, they enjoy clearly and are very good at. I mean, they're all very gifted athletes and they just, you know, whatever, screw the people watching. We're going to be who we are. and, And that's the end of that. And it is what it is, but it was just one of those other things that really pushed me away from football. Um, baseball, I, I can't, I can't really say anything in regards to being pushed away from baseball. Baseball is very much a game of tradition. I like that. Uh, it's a game without a clock, which is beautiful. The game is played until the game's over. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, and it's boring as hell. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Like I just, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see the appeal. I can't figure out why it's so much fun to watch two guys play catch for nine innings for for two and a half hours, and every once in a while a guy hits it, a ball goes up, and if it doesn't come down past the fence, somebody catches it, and we just move on. And um, there was an era of baseball that was great. Um, Everybody roided up, um, and they were smashing balls like farther than anybody had. There were home run records being broke. And for that little window, um, right after they had locked out, which, by the way, union sport, and oftentimes when they don't get their way, uh, you know, they, um, they go on strike and the whole season is thrown in the toilet, which F the fans, I guess, right? Who cares? Um so, so baseball, uh, had that going and then they had the roid air and that was the most fun I ever saw. Uh, I, I, I don't know anybody that didn't watch baseball during the time Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were smashing balls. I mean, obliterating them and it, this sport was worth watching. And then it found out that they were taking performance enhancing drugs and they were stripped of all their records and their teams had to pay prices. And, and by the way, no fan ever sees an ounce of fine money. I don't know where it goes, but certainly not into the pockets of the fans who pay to see these games. And, and then it, it went back to a game of watching two people play catch. And that's all I got to say about that. I don't know. I like going to baseball games. I find that fun. Um, not at all for the game, just because baseball stadium food is banging. It's great. Beer is good. Uh, the communal aspects, the honeybee aspects of being in a crowd and watching a game. And generally it drags on for too long. And oftentimes I leave before it's over because I don't care who wins or loses. Um, I was there to have a good time. Mission accomplished. Peace out, son. Um, and if I'm honest, uh, I can count on one hand with two fingers how many professional baseball games I've seen, whereas like AAA, where those guys are getting paid a wage very similar to the people in the stands, but they're doing it to play baseball. Um, there's a purity in that. There's something about like triple 4A baseball that is beautiful. Like you're just watching guys who have a career who aren't making stupid money. 60, 70, 70, 80,000 
a year to play baseball. Um, and they just do it. They, they go out, they have a blast. The stadiums are smaller, so they're a lot more fun to be in. Uh, the parking situation is never out of hand. The food is just as good, if not better. Um, and the beer is always cold. Ah, it's great. I, I would today, even though it's freezing cold outside here in uh, uh, sunny Pennsylvania, I'd go to a AAA baseball game. I think they're fun. Um, but it, it wide mass never really appealed to me. Uh, basketball, I never got into basketball. Uh, there was a game for the Super Nintendo. I forget what it was called. It was some basketball game where, like, if you got a couple points and your guy was running around, his shoes would glow. And then, like, he could do flaming slam dunks and stuff like that. And <laughs> that was fun. But as far as what well, I've never watched a game of basketball in my life, I've never been to a basketball game. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't appeal to me. It's not my thing. I don't have anything against it. Um, and I can almost feel this really weird racial judgment coming on to me for it. But like, I don't know what to say, man. I just don't like basketball and it doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. Uh, hockey. I like hockey. Um, I've, I've been to hockey games. Uh, I like the Sharks, San Jose Sharks. Um, I don't watch it regularly. Uh, I don't watch the regular season at all. It's complete waste. It goes on far too long. And everybody gets in the playoffs anyways. So who cares what happens during the regular season? Come playoff time, I'll casually check to see where the Sharks are doing. There was a year they uh, they got really close to going to the Stanley Cup, and then they got really close to winning it, and I followed along then. But I don't really watch whole hockey games. I, I just I don't have the time. Like, it doesn't do anything for me. Soccer, I have never watched a soccer game. I know I'm breaking hearts with this. Um... It's the biggest sport in the world, uh, football. I think it's great. I think the accessibility that it has um, brings joy and smiles to millions of children around the world. It's great. I'm all about it. I just don't care. Um, I can't watch a game where like more games end nil-nil, like 0-0. Zero, zero. Watching like uh, two teams of guys kick a ball back and forth for hours on end and nobody scoring is, I I don't know. Like I can't get into it guys. I got into racing. Racing is, um, is, is my sport du jour, if you will, and not really car racing. Uh, I could care less about NASCAR. Uh, that's boring. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get the, the appeal to it. Uh, watching a bunch of stock cars um, that are just uh, fiberglass wrapped steel chassis with similar engines and car- carburetors. For the love of Christ, carburetors. Technology from the 1920s. I don't know. I don't, I just, who cares, right? Like, doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I, I guess IndyCar is pretty cool, but I don't watch it. Um, because once again, they just go on tracks that they turn left at. And even though it's open wheel racing, I don't care. I mean, they do do other tracks. They do do, they go to Indianapolis. They go, they go to tracks with some, some right hand bends, but most of them, I just, I I like street racing, but I just don't care. Sorry. Drag racing. 
uh, I worked at a drag racing track as a security guy and I think drag racing is fun. Um, but I can't watch it. It's just boring. Uh, watching two cars line up and just dump horsepower in a straight line for a quarter mile doesn't do anything for me either. Motorcycle racing is where I fall. That is my sport. And I don't know how to explain how I got into it because nobody in my family started watching it. Um, I was just a little kid. The, the internet was relatively new. Uh, Josh McGrath was huge. <laughs> Josh McGrath. He was a motor, he was a, a motocross guy who, I don't know, won the hearts and minds of everybody somehow. I don't know. Motocross got big when I was a little kid. I didn't care about motocross. I still, to this day, I don't care for dirt bikes, but so, and I can't even tell you how, but like all of a sudden this channel popped up called speed. I must've been 12, 13 in that, in that range that like, I was trying to figure myself out and what I liked and didn't like. And the Speed Channel used to have Hot Rod Magazine TV uh, and a bunch of just car shows, Hemming Motor News um, and Top Gear. And uh, Top Gear was on BBC, which they used to play the reruns on Speed. And it was just one day, I don't know, one Sunday I was clicking through. Uh, must have been like 1999, 2000, somewhere there and abouts. And I saw a world superbike race and, and I saw Troy Bayliss from Australia on this red Italian rocket just going head to head with these other guys. And I mean, in these beautiful flowing lines where like one moment the motorcycle would be fighting to keep the front wheel down and in the next moment the back wheel was popping up on him and then he was diving the bike down on lean angles that were just absolutely mind-blowing and cutting into this turn at a ridiculous speed and then standing the bike back up and then leaning on the opposite direction and not only was he doing it but in some gorgeous mathematical synchronization everybody else was doing it and this flowing ribbon of motorcycles that just danced along the track just was so aesthetically appealing and um, I watched the whole race. Troy Bayless won. I, I believe it was uh, Brands Hatch. It was either Brands Hatch or it was a Mola. And and he won. And he gets up on the step. Uh, and and there's there's wreaths and trophies and they're flowing champagne. And and he did a booty, which is an Australian thing. Like when they win, they pour a little bit of the champagne into the boot and then they drink it out of their boot. I don't know why, but it's it just started this tradition. And then I started reading about MotoGP and about uh, World Superbike. And I found out that World Superbike was based off of a homogenization series where the guys would get factory bikes that were available to the public, breathe on them heavily, get them a little faster than what you could buy in the showroom and go race them. And MotoGP was a prototype race where the manufacturers would create prototype motorcycles and they would invest large amounts of their own money in technologies to see who could be the fastest. And MotoGP was, you know, the, the pinnacle of two-wheeled motorsports. Um, at the time, Ducati didn't really have a team. Uh, all of the manufacturers were, were Japanese manufacturers on the grid. And I didn't get into MotoGP other than to watch Valentino Rossi, um, who 
if you know anything about MotoGP, is a storied name. And I watched him ascend to the throne, and it was it was a time to be alive. You know, I had found my sports identity. I had, through trial and error, gone through all the things that I liked and didn't like, and uh, I, I narrowed it down to this sport that nobody in my family liked, um, that made it very unpopular for me on Sundays, and and I I don't know. I found my home, uh, and it it tied into cars because I liked mechanical things. I like cars. I was I was in amidst discovering who I was. So I have this background where I'm half Italian, half Scottish schmutt thing. And the idea of being able to go someday and buy a motorcycle was just amazing because I loved riding bikes. The idea of buying a motorcycle and riding a motorcycle was amazing. And at 16, um, I went on eBay and I found a Suzuki GS550L which if you Google that looks like the most plain Jane basic motorcycle ever. And I bought it from the paper editor of the reader's digest in orange County, New York. And I drove, I drove up there, picked up my new motorcycle, which did not run by the way. And got to see orange County choppers, which people in the early two thousands are probably laughing their heads off now. Cause that was a show that was on where they built custom choppers and that started my motorcycling, and I had owned a motorcycle uh, off and on my whole life then. Uh, this is currently an off time, but not for long. Um, I, I have big plans this year to get another one. I'm trying to get my, my house in order, my finances, my priorities, you know, make sure that, that I'm moving forward in, in a good direction. And I think this year I'm going to splurge on myself. I think this is going to be the year... Um, 2021 that is that that I see a Ducati come back into my garage because I I miss it uh riding a motorcycle I don't know how to explain it any more than it is akin to meditating um when you're on two wheels and there's no cage around you and you are open to all the elements wind scents um water obviously rain um the cold the heat uh, the exhaust of other cars, the smells of animals and flowers and people smoking in the car in front of you. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. And then of course you're, you know, you're going down these roads that in a car are difficult to navigate, but on a motorcycle, you have to, you have to concentrate so much on what you're doing. You have to think about not only on the road that you're, you're right on, but you have to be looking way up ahead and thinking about how you're going to approach the turn and what speed and when your braking markers are. And you get so focused in riding that motorcycle that everything else in your life blots out. You know, you're worried about finances, blots out. You're worried about your relationships, blots out. Um, you know, it's like you get this vision of everything in your life and then you get on a motorcycle and it just narrows down like you have blinders and the only thing you can see is what that visor wants you to see and you have to pay attention or you're going to die you're going to miss something you're going to miss that car trying to pull out in front of you 100 yards ahead and you ain't stopping the bike in time to to, to not hit them or you're going to miss that dog that's going to run out and chase you or that deer or that squirrel or that pothole i mean 
it is truly one of the most dangerous things in the world is to ride a motorcycle on the road. And yet it's so freeing. It's so beautiful. You're so at one with everything. And then, of course, the bikes themselves. I mean, the exquisite. And my first bike I hated, that Suzuki GS550, was a terrible bike. Um, only in the sense that it was heavy, it was slow, and I dropped it all the time. And uh, it, I always picked it up, dusted it off, got back on it, rode again. And you need that in a learning bike. You definitely need to feel like dropping it's okay. Uh, eventually, I sold that bike. And my next bike was my first sport bike, uh, a Ninja. Yeah, was it Ninja? Yeah, it was a Ninja 500 EX, um, sportier bike. It wasn't really a truly a sport bike, um, and uh, and that bike was even better. Uh, that bike was awesome. I that was what really made me fall in love with sport bikes. And then of course, my friends all had cruisers, and they're like, "Man, you should buy a cruiser. Uh, you're a big fat guy. You look stupid on a sport bike." get a cruiser. You'll like it so much more. So I got a cruiser. I had a, a Honda shadow, uh, 1100 and I hated that bike. It was super heavy. It didn't stop. It didn't turn. Um, it sounded like crap. I just, ugh, blah, blah. and then I got my first Ducati and I got a monster six, nine, six plus, And I loved it. It was my favorite bike I've ever had. Uh, I followed that up with a Ducati eight, four, eight. Um, and then I wrecked on that, and then I got a Harley, and I hated that Harley, and I'm going to get a Ducati again. Um, there's just something about it. This year in MotoGP, uh, I got to watch somebody win the championship. Um, in a year, we weren't sure we were going to have motorsports. Um, at one point, it was canceled altogether. There was a bunch of tracks that they had planned their race at that were canceled. Then they ended up racing at the same track twice, weeks, you know, week back to back. One of the main stars crashed out and broke his arm. Like, it was such an exciting season. MotoGP this year was fantastic. And not that anybody knows his names, but congratulations, Mir, uh, for winning the championship. Uh, I, I, Suzuki may well go on and do the triple crown this year and win the, the riders championship, the constructors championship, the team championship. I mean, Suzuki had a wonderful program. Ducati fell apart. Uh, I don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, you'd really have to get in MotoGP. And I think if I did a podcast on MotoGP in any type of depth, people would tune right out, but it's an exciting sport and they do absolutely nothing to harm their fans um they had a virtual wall where they had people mock in the grandstands not cardboard cutouts screens that they just superimposed onto the racetrack um the like the video of the racetrack so it seemed like the fans were being involved and and they don't ask any money from any of the municipalities. MotoGP doesn't get a bunch of money to go race at Qatar in the Middle East or or at any of the Italian or Spanish tracks. Um, they get the the TV rights, they get the brands rights, and of course it's it's a huge sport. It's a huge sport and it's growing. I mean, there's billions of dollars wrapped up in MotoGP, and being a world sport makes it even bigger. Um, world Superbike is the same way. They had a, a very truncated season, uh, but it was a good season. And it was a season Ducati almost put somebody on the top step. Almost. Um, Kawasaki beat out that one, too. And and good on them. I mean, Johnny Ria is now 
the the winningest world superbike rider ever. Congratulations. Um, but I think next year, Ducati's going to come to the top step in World Superbike again. Uh, they seem to have a formidable package, but that's my whole rant on sports. I don't know. Maybe it was more of a just-to-get-to-know-me sesh, but I I don't know. I mean, do sports make you tick? Do you hate them? Love them? Uh, you can let me know in the comments. Uh, you can reach out to me via socials, but... I think sports are definitely one of those things that help make isolation doable. They get people excited. They bring a sense of community, but they're, they're also harmful. I think there's ways that, that many sports harm the communities they're in. I think that sports collectively have done harm to the public psyche. And I, I wish it weren't the case, but it is what it is. Um, now you know my favorite is MotoGP, which probably bored you to death. I'm sorry. Uh, but I wanted to do a nice light podcast, so what better than sports? Um, so there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week, uh, hopefully on time. And uh, we'll just keep this thing trugging. Next week's my last week at uh, my current job, and then I move on to my next one. So have a safe week, everybody. Uh, hug people that are in the same household, express your feelings for people far away. Uh, we're, we're going to get through this and, uh, I have a feeling the holidays are going to be different. Uh, definitely a learning moment, but, uh, in learning how to do things differently and new, we, we might have traditions to pass on later. I can't wait for all the COVID traditions, uh, that, that have, will implant themselves in the holidays. So have a good week, everybody stay safe.